Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Uh, the month of March, as you may or may not know, is called Women's History Month. I'm not sure why we all giggled there, but uh, in, its, in its most positive view, this month is a celebration, meant to be a celebration of the achievements of women and the acknowledgement of their contribution and activity in our history. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. However, we live in an age of conflicting messages. On the one hand, we have a month dedicated to Women's History Month. On the other, we are a confused society that is unable or unwilling to even define what a woman is. And even go so far as affirming that men can be women. This is seen most deplorably recently as a man identifying as a woman was given the International Woman of Courage Award at our White House. This is a delusion. It is a delusion. It is mass delusion. That's exactly what it is to the detriment of women everywhere. Every woman should be outraged. In fact, you don't have to be a feminist to be outraged by that. Every man should be outraged. And though that is our cultural moment, I'm glad to report to you this morning that there actually is definition to what a man is and what a woman is. And that from the beginning of creation, the creator of all things actually spoke on this matter. We are not left to wonder what a man is. We're not left to wonder what a woman is. We're not left to wonder whether or not you are a woman or you are a man. God has spoken on this. In Genesis chapter 2, we see an account of creation. The creation of the garden, the first garden, the garden in Eden. Last week, we also noted that the, the, create, the creation of the first man as seen at the beginning part of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, really zooms in on the sixth day of creation. Chapter 1, we see all six days, and then chapter 2 kind of gives us a more local, a localized view of what occurred on day 6. It's on this day that God made animals, made man, and made woman. In our passage today, we'll see how and why God made women, as well as the institution and purpose of marriage. We'll read about the first woman and the first marriage. Verses 18 through 22 speak to just that. Throughout the first five days of creation, in chapter 1, we see a repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good over and over again. And yet we come to the sixth day, as described in chapter 2, and we find out that something was not good. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After all the it is good, after looking at all that he has made, Yet on the sixth day, God acknowledges that there's something not good, and that was that Adam was alone. There was, as one writer says, a substantial deficiency. 
Adam did not determine the need. We should note that. Adam's not the one who looked around and said, I'm alone. He wouldn't have known he's alone. He doesn't know what it means to be with someone. How would he know what it means to be alone, right? But God knew that he was alone. God determined the need and God determined the resolution. The solution that God resolved for man's loneliness was to, quote, make a helper fit for him or a helper suitable for him or a help opposite him or corresponding to him. The helper would be complementary. It would be supplying what was lacking. That's what we see here in Genesis 2. Adam's need became more apparent as he was tasked with naming the animals. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Here we see God giving Adam responsibility and authority in the garden. It tells us something about Adam. It tells us something about his intellect and his capacity to, to look at these animals and understand them and therefore name these animals animals. But in the naming of the animals, not only demonstrated Adam's place in God's creation, not only demonstrated Adam's dominion over creation, it also revealed the absence of a personal companion, a social companion, that there was no one else like Adam. There was found no helper fit for him. No animal could do for Adam what the woman would do for Adam. That's true today. And so God acted. Look at verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, one, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from Adam was made into a woman and brought, and brought her to the man. Here, we see God making woman, who we come to find out later is called Eve in chapter 3, verse 20. God made the woman as a helper for Adam. Now that word helper may, to some, seem derogatory or seem less than. But that actually is not how the Bible uses the term at all. In fact, in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 9, God himself refers to himself as Israel's helper. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, the Holy Spirit is referred to as our helper. So if God the Father and God the Spirit willingly identify with the role as helper, then certainly there is nothing derogatory about the term. As a helper, the woman was not made to be a slave to the man or inferior to the man, but instead was, as Derek Kidner writes, his partner and counterpart. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, 
that woman is the glory of man. We see here in verse 7 that God made man, we see in verse 7 that God made man from the dust. And now here in verse 22, that God took a rib from the man in order to make Eve. Matthew Henry has this great quote. It goes like this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved. God created man and God created woman, which means they are equally valuable and equally worthy. The malpractice of some in this area is not an indication of what the Bible teaches. Now, maybe some of you have had bad experiences with men treating women in an inferior way or less than. Their malpractice does not indicate what the Bible actually teaches. It rather indicates man's capacity to misuse and abuse God's word, which happens. But don't let the failure of some cause you to miss the beauty of God's created order. And there is beauty in God's creative order. The distinctions between roles of men and women is not an indication of equality, but of difference. Separate, different, but equal. These roles are for our good. They're for the good of families. They're for the good of communities and societies and all of humanity. And ultimately, as we'll see in a little bit, about God. They're actually about the glory of God, if you can imagine. And the church ought to be on the front line here of honoring the place of women in all of life. In the home, in the community, and in the church. To begin with, we wouldn't be here without women. None of you would be here without women. So certainly there is honor. But more than their ability to bear children, women are honored and valued as God's creation. As bearers of God's image. Well, after God made woman in verse 22... Look at verse 22 says, and he brought her to the man. Now, one theologian writes this, God himself, like a father of the bride, leads the woman to the man. Isn't that a great picture? It's as though God is walking his, his daughter Eve down the, down the aisle to meet Adam. Which brings us to verses 23 through 25, and we see the first marriage. Moses records Adam's response to seeing the woman. God brings the woman to Adam, and what does Adam do? Verse 23, and the, and the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, we're only in the second chapter of Genesis, so this isn't surprising, but this is the first time a, a person is quoted. This is the first time a human speaks that's quoted in the scripture. And it's poetry. 
Verse 23 is, is, is poetic. There's structure and there's technique in what is going on in verse 23 that's standard to poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry. And we could understand this, that in the presence of, of the beauty of the woman, the most fitting thing was poetry. That's, that, that, that's, that's kind of beautiful, isn't it? That, that, that's the response of, of Adam is when he sees her, he breaks into poetry. Now, now in the English, we think about blood relationships. Uh, blood is thicker than water, we might say. But in, in Hebrew, it's flesh and bone. And so when he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that's like saying that they're they are my blood child or my, my blood family. That, that's the image here that, that, that Adam is taking. Adam is recognizing He's recognizing himself in the woman. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, with obvious notable differences, of course, right? But nonetheless, he's recognizing that she is comparable, compatible to him. In the Hebrew here, we don't see it, but the Hebrew word that's used for man in the end of verse 23, she was taken out of man, is the Hebrew word ish. Now, everywhere else, before this, the word has been Adam, which is where we get Adam. It's the, the name for man. But here it's the word ish. And it's a play on words because the word for, for woman is isha. And so there's this, this beautiful connection between the two terms. That out of ish came isha. Out of the man, out of the, the husband or the opposite of the woman comes woman comes a wife, comes a biological female, the counterpart of the male. They were two different beings, different. One was a male, one was a female, one was a man, one was a woman, one was the husband, one was the wife. There shouldn't be such confusion on this matter. It seems obviously clear in the scriptures God made us male and female. And here we have a woman being brought to a man, a biological woman being brought to a biological man in order to become one flesh, as we will see in just a moment. The woman was made from man and made for man. And man's need was addressed. He was no longer alone. He now had a, had a companion as he says, at last, <laughs> at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. After I've looked at all these animals, none of them are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here, here Adam is, is making the case. We didn't come from animals. There's no animal like me. No, no, the woman was made for Adam. As this need was addressed, as he now has a companion we move to verses 24 and 25, and we see God's design of this relationship. Uh, the, this woman and this companionship, that, this companionship that, that God would give to Adam was not Adam's design. Adam didn't think up, hey God, you know what would be great is if you gave me a woman. Hey God, you know what would be great if, if you did marriage. I think marriage would be a good idea, God. No, no, Adam did nothing. Adam did nothing. God saw the need. God supplied the woman. And God said, this is how this union is going to work. The singular union of one man and one woman for life. That's what marriage is. That's what marriage is. Is this thing on? 
Come on. The singular union of one man and one woman for life is God's design. It is God's decree. It is God's definition. No matter what any secular or pagan society may purport. No other so-called marriage is marriage. It cannot be marriage. Why? Because marriage is a singular union of one man and one woman for life. It may be something, but it isn't marriage. These are only diversions and deviations from God's authoritative creation ordinance. Now, some might not appreciate what was just said. But I want you to understand this morning, and anybody who hears this, this is not bigotry. This is not homophobia. And the reason it is not either bigotry or homophobia is because there is no hate and there is no fear. Not accepting something does not mean not loving. Unacceptance does not equal hate. Don't know where we got this idea. There's plenty of things we disagree with one another about. Doesn't mean we hate each other. And so it is with this. We can adamantly disagree with someone about their view of human sexuality and still love them. We're not afraid of them or afraid of any view related to human sexuality that differs from ours or differs from the Bible. This is not a needless combative spirit against our culture either. We're not looking to pick a fight. We're not looking just to poke the bear. It's not what we're doing. We're not just a resistance just because. No, it's a recognition of God's authority over marriage. It's a recognition that marriage actually is sacred. And if it's sacred, that means it's God's. And that means that no man, no government has the right to redefine it. It's been defined. It is pre-political. It's been, it, it, it was defined before before anybody had, had any rights or any ideas of what marriage was, it's already been defined. No one, no one has the right to redefine what God has said, no matter how we feel about it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What does the word of God say about the sacred or the sanctity of marriage? It's God's design, and it is a covenantal union. It's a covenant. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's a covenant. One man, one woman, covenanting together. This verse 24 is a divine revelation to Moses that he wrote down. And I said, well, that's Old Testament. Yet yeah, Jesus quoted it, okay? If you're going to go there, Jesus quoted this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, where he spoke about marriage and he spoke about divorce. Which, by the way, is one of the places to combat the Jesus never talked about homosexuality argument. 
That's what, I don't know if you heard that one. Well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, he did say something about marriage. And if he affirmed the creation ordinance, if he affirmed one man, one woman for life, then he did say something about it. He said that there's only one woman and one marriage. It's the creation ordinance. But we should also note that as Jesus was speaking to the nature and the ordinance of marriage, he was not just speaking against things like homosexuality. To some degree, that's low-hanging fruit these days. He's speaking about any activity that transgresses this covenant union. So that certainly involves any deviation from marriage. It involves adultery. It involves unbiblical divorce. Any other kinds of unions that are outside of the creation ordinance. Verse 24 gives to us what is sometimes called the leave and cleave principle. Now in the ESV, it doesn't use the word cleave. It uses the words hold fast. Let the man the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The principle is that, that marriage is a covenant between God, between a man and a woman before or in the sight of God. It is, as again, Derek Kidner writes, an exclusive, permanent, God-sealed bond. The man is to leave his father and his mother. Now, customarily, for, for a Jew, this is relatively speaking. It's not physically speaking, because they actually didn't leave their mother and father. They stayed. It was actually the wife that would leave her family and come to the husband's family. So what is, what is he saying if he doesn't mean a physical leaving of the mother and father? He means leaving in regard to loyalties and affections, priorities, to leave that and to cleave to his wife, to hold fast or to stick to one writer tells us that this, this idea of holding fast or sticking to is used of smoldering two parts of metal together in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 7. Fusing two things together, bringing them together. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the, the, the Israelites are urged, are, are, are told to hold fast or stick to the Lord in the covenant relationship. We should also note here that Moses' directive is to the man. That the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The man has the responsibility to lead in this matter and in this area. The point was that no longer was the first obligation to the parents. Now it was to his wife. Now, principally, we could say the same goes for the wife. But the directive actually is to the husband. And this is no small matter. Some of you have experienced this. You've experienced it maybe with your children or maybe you've experienced it with your own parents. The transition can be difficult for some kids. Going from, from leaving a family and making a new family. Separation from parents. Sometimes it's hard for the parents to let it go. Sometimes we, we make jokes about cutting the umbilical cord. But the, the point is, is that there's a leaving of that to, to cleave to this new relationship, this new family. It's necessary. It's commanded in order for the health of this new marriage to become one flesh, which is what we see in the rest of verse 24. 
leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and, shall, and, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, this, this idea of one flesh speaks to deep intimacy only found in the marital union of a man and a woman. Ray Ortland writes this, this expression, one flesh, this, this expression names marriage as one mortal life fully shared. The word one bespeaks, um, bespeaks of a life fully shared and the word flesh success suggests the transient mora- mortality of this life. So he writes, in the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away. The married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all boundaries and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. It is this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage, more profound than even the most intense friendship, end quote. Marriage is awesome. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is for oneness. Views of marriage, however, have changed quite a bit in the past decades. We have seen more and more the delay of marriage. We've seen the the rise of acceptable cohabitation by our culture, which is not acceptable to the word of God, we might add. It defiles the marriage bed, which is meant to be honored. We see this in the spread of secularity and the increase of individualism. And some may wonder even, why should I bother getting married? Why get married anyways? It's actually a question we ask in our premarital counseling. We say, why do you want to get married? Why? Why would you do this? What is your your thinking on the purpose of such a thing? And we may wonder the same. Well, both here in Genesis 2 and throughout the Bible, we can see several purposes for marriage. Warren Wiersbe actually points out four. And the first one he says we find here in Genesis 2 is companionship. That God made the woman for man. He made the, the woman so that man wasn't alone. Secondly, we can see it was for sex and procreation. Marriage is the context and the only context for God-ordained enjoyment of sex and having children. In chapter 1, verse 28, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. We also know that marriage is for the purpose of self-control. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn, to burn with passion or to burn with sexual temptation. And finally, the purpose of marriage is to illustrate the union between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses this, to, to, this illustration. And he says that marriage is imaging Christ and the church. As Christ loved the church, so a husband is to love his wife that the marital union images or pictures how Christ loves the church. It, it, it pictures this mystical union between Christ and the church. But the picture only works if it's, if it's according to God's created order. 
You can't image something with interchangeable parts. It's not interchangeable parts. It's one man and it's one woman. And to divert from the design is to destroy the illustration, for which is one of the main purposes of marriage to begin with. But just because we have the right design doesn't actually mean that we're imaging Christ in the church either, does it? And there are far too many Christians who have unchristian marriages. What makes a, a Christian marriage Christian is Christ. What makes a Christian a Christian? It's Christ. So you, you can't be a Christian without Christ, and you can't have a Christian marriage without Christ. You can't illustrate Christ in the church without Christ in your marriage. So the first and great question is, do you have Christ? If you don't have Christ, then you can't image any of these things. You need Christ, and Christ has come, and Christ has died, and Christ has risen again in order that you could be saved, in order that you could have Christ, in order that Christ could live in you, and that you can present him to the world. If you're married, is Christ at the center of your marriage? Are you imaging this mystical union of Christ in the church as a testimony to the world? Verse 25 comes, brings the, the chapter to a close of this sixth day with a statement about the man and the woman. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here, to be naked and unashamed describes the perfection of their marriage. That there was no fear. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no hiding. There was nothing to be afraid of. No sin. They were both fully known and fully loved. This was the perfect marriage in the perfect garden with the perfect father. It is right that we call this paradise. For it was. And whereas on the sixth day, God said it was not good. At the close, in chapter 1, verse 31, God looks at everything that he has made and said it is very good. You see, when God informs your life and your love, as Kent Hughes writes, when God is at your center or is your center, it is very good. So what informs your life and what informs your love today? Is it the culture? Is it the media? Is it the opinions of other people? Is it your own passion or your own lust? There's plenty to distract us. There's any number of things that become the center for us. The functional center, we might say. But life according to God, life informed by him and informed by his word is the good life. We might call what we talked about today a traditional view of men and women in marriage. This isn't about tradition. This is about holding on to some past idea. This is about the biblical creation ordinance. What God has ordained, that's what we want to uphold. Outside of God, outside of his word, outside of his ordained will, there's only pain, there's only judgment, there's only death. Next week, we're gonna look at chapter three. We're going to see how Adam and Eve rebelled against God's goodness. And we're going to see what it costs. May God help us to live informed by his word this week for his glory and for our good.
pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would inform us today. There's so much around us. There's so much, uh, so many things being said. So many ideas about sexuality, about marriage, about gender. Yet God, I pray that we would, would tie ourselves firmly to the text. That the winds of, of culture would not distract us from the truth. Would you find us faithful? Would you help us to live faithfully, informed by your word this week? Knowing that you're good, and therefore your word is good. It's good for us, it's good for the world for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God, you